It's not just the weapons manufacturers. Big oil is cashing in on the war in Ukraine, too, with plans for massive drilling expansion with the help of the Biden administration. We're going to also give an update on the latest from the Ukraine war. We'll discuss the latest right-wing attacks on so-called critical race theory, how the super-rich pay little to nothing in taxes, the latest developments in Palestine, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the Socialist Program with Brian Becker. It's April 19th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing and register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which will be held this coming Monday, March 28th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Patrons can submit questions for Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. This month's seminar will be an extension of the conversation that Brian and I had last Thursday on essentially the fact that the Ukraine war has created a new era in global politics. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarim, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarim is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, we've got to start with the new updates in the Ukraine war, what's going on there, Just trying to see through the fog of war as best we can and understanding what our role is here in the United States. Well, there is a flood of comments from members of the U.S. House of Representatives, the U.S. Senate, and of course the media itself, demanding that President Biden escalate the war, including sending troops into Ukraine, which of course will mean global conflict with Russia. But that chorus is growing ever louder. Let's start with a news clip. Esther, is this CBS? Right. CBS Face the Nation. Okay, let's listen. Senator Chris Coons. Members of the president's own party are starting to ask how long the U.S. should let Ukraine hold back the Russian army all on its own. The situation in Mariupol is both dire militarily and heartbreaking. Uh, the city doesn't exist anymore. Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuliba said today Russian seizure of the city could mean an end to future negotiations with Russia. Mariupol may be a red line. Ukraine says its embattled east will not be able to hold out much longer against the larger and more powerful Russian military without larger and more powerful Western weapons. The Biden administration is already rushing $800 million worth of military aid, including helicopters, howitzers, and ammunition. I would really like to hear the administration talk about winning and, and having a sense of urgency um, on getting these things there. Otherwise, this window of opportunity we have the next couple of weeks to really disrupt Russia's attempt to build up 
is going to pass. But Democrat Chris Coons, an ally of the president, says it's time for him to reconsider sending in U.S. troops, something Mr. Biden has repeatedly said he won't do. I think the history of the 21st century turns on how fiercely mm-hmm. we defend freedom in Ukraine and that Putin will only stop when we stop him. All right, Walter, that's clear that what the U.S. chorus, the U.S. pro-war propaganda chorus is demanding is not negotiations, which could lead to a quick end of the war if Russia's very legitimate security concerns, meaning not having Ukraine enter NATO and not using Ukraine or other nearby countries as a staging ground for advanced missiles that target Russia, Those are legitimate security concerns, and the U.S. could come back to the negotiating table. Only they could do it. Zelensky has no room, really, to negotiate, even if he wanted to. But the U.S. doesn't want to negotiate. And all of these voices who are counseling Biden, including in a very public way, are not saying, let's get back to the negotiating table. They're like, let's win the war. Let's beat the Russians. It's kind of like, let's keep fighting And we're going to fight until the last Ukrainian is dead. They don't give a damn about Ukrainian people or Ukraine. They want to win the war against Russia. This is a proxy war by the United States against Russia. And Ukraine is a pawn. Anyway, Walter, there's a lot going on again in Mariupol. We heard the the Ukrainian foreign minister saying Mariupol no longer exists. This is a city that's gone back and forth over the last eight years between being under the control of the independent people's republics, the Donetsk people's republic and the Luhansk people's republic. And then it was taken back by the Azov battalion, the literally the Nazi forces. Anyway, let's just talk about the latest in the Ukraine war from a military point of view. Yeah, very important developments going on the last few days. Russia has announced that they've taken control of essentially the entirety of the city of Mariupol. But there is still fighting taking place at essentially one massive steel plant in the city, the Azovstal steel plant. And by all accounts, both the Russian military, the Ukrainian government, the Western media, I mean, there's no controversy about this. The last remaining defenders of Mariupol, the the people who are holed up in the steel plant, are members of the Azov battalion. These are, as you said, Nazis. That's no exaggeration. I mean, these are like swastika, Hitler-saluting Nazis. And yeah, I mean, they're among the most ideologically committed fighters, and so they are the last to surrender in this case. It remains unclear how long they'll be able to hold out. I mean, of course, their supplies must be dwindling, but you know, at the same time, the steel plant is really a, a natural fortification. It has, for instance, lots of underground tunnels that they're able to move around in. So, so this is a real fierce battle that's going on. And make no mistake about it, I mean, these people that are being lionized in the West by U.S. politicians, by U.S. pundits, by the Ukrainian government, these are like self-professed neo-Nazis and fascists. So that's tremendously dangerous, I think, in terms of the normalization of the far right writ large. But then, you know, just think about what this means for the future of Ukraine. I mean, the people who are fighting in that steel plant will probably die. Those Azov battalion fighters, you know, seem determined to fight to the death. But the leaders of the battalion are not there in that steel plant. I mean, the political apparatus that's sort of created this whole far-right fascist militia, you know, entities of which Azov is the most important, that will survive. And now the entire country 
or you know, the entire ruling elite of the country and of the West have identified them as heroes. So their political status, their political stature seems to be on the rise. I mean, a very troubling development. And all for the sake of, as you said, prolonging the war. They want the war to go on for as long as they possibly can, regardless of the human cost, regardless of the political costs in terms of the promotion of these fascistic forces that are going to be influential, you know, that may be influential for some years to come. And the cost to the entire world, because, of course, these are the two largest nuclear armed powers in the world at the brink of all out conflict. Right. Sending U.S. troops, which now Chris Coons is calling on Biden to reconsider, sending U.S. troops to Ukraine means that U.S. troops will be shooting at Russians. Russians will be shooting at Americans. They'll be shooting at each other's aircraft. If that were to happen, we are going to have a dramatic escalation of the war. It will become a war between the United States and Russia. Now, since the dropping of the atomic bombs, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. There's been no major war in Europe, certainly, between nuclear powers. The whole struggle of the peace movement in the 1950s and 1960s and 70s and 80s in Europe was to prevent a return to global conflict, meaning global war, world war. But the difference this time, of course, will be that all the main adversaries, the United States and Russia, will have nuclear weapons. And if one side starts to lose and neither side will accept defeat, then what's the answer? What's the answer if your side is starting to be defeated? Because the American members of the Senate and the House are saying we must defeat Russia. We can do it. We have to escalate. So what happens if Russia says, well, we're not going to be defeated? We're not. We are a a country that has 5,000 operational nuclear weapons, and we're not going to have happen to us what Hitler tried to have happen to us in World War II. We're going to fight, and we're going to launch a counteroffensive. What does a counteroffensive look like in the modern era? It looks like not simply troops moving to the west or to the east in a counteroffensive. There are weapon systems that are advanced weapon systems, including nuclear weapons. So for people in the United States, you should be making it crystal clear to your members, they're not really your members, but the members of Congress who say they represent you and say clearly all of this talk about escalation is really not only cavalier and provocative, it's the most catastrophically dangerous move that the U.S. could possibly make And they're bringing the world to the brink of a nuclear catastrophe. And the alternative would be simply to have a negotiated agreement whereby Ukraine becomes a neutral country. I mean, the outlines of a peace deal are crystal clear. But actually, and as you can hear, Esther, these people who are on TV, again, you listen to the shows, you know, they don't want peace. They want an escalation. Well, I have to say increasingly, It's very difficult to listen to the shows. (laughs) It's a real sacrifice. During the week, I cannot listen to. But on Sunday morning, I I make a little bit of a sacrifice to listen to some. And when I heard Fareed Zakaria on Sunday, like we said during our meeting earlier, he sounded like he was a, a general commanding the forces and making decisions about what the U.S. should do. So let's play a little bit of his clip During this whole monologue that he gives at the beginning of his show, he started talking about how maybe Russia has been set back 
in the West, but it may be successful in the East and we have to, you know, stop that at all costs, you know, and of course that's the corporate media narrative, which Russia denies that it was defeated in the West. They have a different narrative about their military strategy, but in any case, let's listen to him talk about, you know, what the U S should do to keep ramping this up. Putin seems determined to press on no matter the costs. So what can the United States and the West do? much more of everything they are already doing. Ukraine needs more arms, especially those that give it massive asymmetrical fighting power. General Mark Hurtling, who has been farsighted in diagnosing Russia's weaknesses and Ukraine's strengths, explained to me that Ukraine needs more equipment that allows it to maneuver quickly around Russia's rigid forces. That means helicopters, armed Humvees, multiple launch rocket systems, drones of every kind. Turkish drones have proved to be an amazingly effective weapon in this conflict. General Hurtling urges that Ukraine be given more of those as well as American kamikaze drones and intelligence drones. The Russian Navy, which has been massing in the Black Sea, continues to pose a great danger to Odessa, threatening to either lay siege to it or launch an amphibious landing behind Ukrainian lines. Despite the success of the Neptune missile, Ukraine does not have the capacity to stop the Russian Navy. NATO should consider doing something similar to what it did during the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. It should enforce an embargo around those waters, preventing Russian troops from entering to attack Ukraine's cities or resupplying Russian forces. NATO ships would operate from international waters, issuing any approaching ships notice to mariners that NATO forces are active in the area and warnings not to enter. Admiral James Stavridis, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, supports the actions the Biden administration has taken, but urges a more aggressive response from the West on all fronts. Give Ukraine fighter planes and air defense systems, he tweeted. Help it with cyber attacks and give it anti-ship missiles to sink Russian ships in the Black Sea. We have Fareed Zakaria, you know, a journalist, talk show host, you know, not normally like the most right wing militarist voice, certainly a pro-establishment voice, but, you know, not the most extreme. He's calling for essentially the U.S. Air Force to enter by one means or another the war. Also, we've talked about before about, you know, the clamor for a no-fly zone. This is basically like a no-sell zone, whereby NATO ships are giving warnings to Russians and to others that if you come into these waters, you will be destroyed. You put this all together, and I would say that we're heading for a major escalation of the war. And again, people in the United States have been so spellbound by the demonization campaign of Russia, you know, the complete 100% demonization of Russia. You would think that every missile that was fired in this war, in this proxy war between the United States and Russia, Every missile was fired by Russia. Like Ukraine hasn't done anything except until it finally sunk the Russian naval destroyer in the Black Sea. But I want to remind people that the Ukrainian army, the armed forces of Ukraine, are a fairly big army, Walter. I mean, I think it's the sixth biggest army in Europe. It has at least 225,000 people under arms. 
the Azov Battalion and the other right-wing battalions are also very large, tens of thousands more fighters in those. Ukraine had lots of leftover weapons from the Soviet Union. Uh, of course, remember, Ukraine was the second largest republic of the Soviet Union before it was dismembered. At the beginning of the war, the Ukrainian army had, the armed forces of Ukraine had 3,040 tanks and armored personnel carriers, 2,800 plus self-propelled and towed guns, 550 multiple launch rocket launchers. They have a powerful system. And since the coup in 2014, Walter, Certainly the military forces associated with the National Guard, the Azov Battalion, and other armed forces of Ukraine, they've been getting lots of combat experience because they've been at war against other Ukrainians in the eastern part of Ukraine, a war that took the lives of 14,000 plus people. And I think everybody acknowledges that number. It's not like a made up number, but they're not considered to be like Ukrainians who died because they're Russian-speaking, or they were part of the Donetsk or Luhansk People's Republic. Anyway, this is a fairly advanced military operation that Ukraine has. And again, for the last four months, the U.S. is pumping billions of dollars more weapons into Ukraine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the $3 billion so far announced for the Ukrainian military, I mean, that's equivalent to about half of the total Ukrainian military budget of last year. So the aid is really considerable, although there are questions about the quality of the weapons that are being sent to Ukraine. I mean, are, for instance, a lot of countries in Eastern Europe with leftover Soviet equipment just kind of using this as an opportunity to unload that and get the political points? I mean, I, I think there's legitimate questions about that too. But there's no doubt about it that Ukraine has been undergoing a major military buildup uh, since the 2014 coup that replaced the, the neutral Yanukovych government with a pro-Western, pro-NATO government. So, I mean, I think that the fighting could drag on for a long time. I mean, there's no way to be totally sure. Of course, a lot of Ukraine's military equipment has been destroyed, but then it's a question of, you know, how much has been replenished essentially by the intervention of these NATO countries. So this is something that could seriously drag on, seriously escalate and cause enormous loss of life, which is completely fine for the NATO countries, because as long as the war continues in their eyes, they're winning. The trend lines are in their favor. One last point that I wanted to make about that Fareed Zakaria clip that we listened to, he cited the wars in the Balkans in the 1990s as, as precedent for this like naval blockade idea that he's proposing. But what that reminded me of was, was the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, this is what Kennedy did in response to the Soviet Union stationing missiles in Cuba. He declared what he called a quarantine a naval quarantine zone and deployed the U.S. Navy to essentially surround Cuba, I mean, surround a, a sovereign nation and say, if any Soviet ships enter these waters, we will blow them up. We will prevent them from entering. And that was the closest, I mean, historians agree, that was the closest that humanity has ever gotten to a nuclear war, to the annihilation of all human life on the planet. That's the kind of things, that's the kind of tone that these people are taking, that these war hawks are taking. I mean, the language harkens back to the most dangerous moment, perhaps, in human history. And, you know, Walter, I think that that figure is actually a lot higher in terms of what the U.S. has committed to Ukraine, because we're talking about more than $13 billion committed in early March, and then adding to that another $3 billion. So people are using the figure $16 billion 
uh, committed to Ukraine for this military buildup when, you know, we cannot get Build Back Better or other types of things here at home. The other thing is that Russia is very clear about the fact that it will shoot down or destroy any types of equipment coming into Ukraine. So we know that this has already happened. And so we wonder how much of this billion dollars that will be paid to arms manufacturers, the military industrial complex, will just get destroyed and blown up. And this huge army that Ukraine has was amassing at the dividing line between I guess, Ukraine and the self-declared republics before the invasion happened. And that's one reason why Putin said he was going in, because this huge army was amassing there for what they, what Russia thought was like a final assault to just basically run over these republics. Yeah, we, we don't know. That's certainly what the Russians are saying. You know, the, the whole timing of the decision, Walter, I'm going to come back to you. And then, I, and then Nicole, I want to go back to you and talk about some of the journalists who are off script, so to speak, when they're coming back from Ukraine and talking on, on Western media, but are telling a story that's very different from the dominant narrative. But Walter, you know, let's go back to the timing of the Russian decision, because the Russians said in December, in November, December, we have red lines. We're not going to let you cross the red lines. The red lines are Ukraine can't be into NATO. We want a firm guarantee that that's not going to happen. We don't want Ukraine to be a staging ground or any of the other nearby countries for advanced missiles. That was the red line. And the Russians amassed all of these military forces. And then the U.S. started predicting that an invasion was coming. We've talked about this before, but I want to go over it once again. The U.S. predicted very clearly that there's going to be a Russian invasion. And the Russians said, no, 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 we're not going to do it. The Russian foreign ministry spokeswoman even made jokes about it. She said, oh, there's going to be an invasion for sure. Please let me know so I can change my vacation plans. They were being very cavalier about it. And then they invaded. And we're getting reports from some forces who are closer inside of Ukraine and also inside of Russia that the decision to invade, while it was obviously well-planned, well-planned in in meaning that there was obviously a contingency plan, that the Putin government was still holding out for the West to come to the table and and agree to the Minsk Accords, which would give semi-autonomy to the Eastern Republics, have a basically a ceasefire, something that the Azov Battalion and then later Zelensky, under the pressure from the Azov Battalion, sort of renounced. Originally, he had been for it. What these reports are telling us is that the decision was largely sort of last minute sort of spontaneous, which would, in a way, help us understand why and how this invasion took place. Esther's making the point that the Russians are at least saying that they got credible evidence that there was going to be an effort by the Azov Battalion to completely retake the eastern part of the country. They had retaken Mariupol, so that would be to retake the Donetsk and Luhansk and other parts of the Donbass, and that the Russians could not let that happen, that this would make the Putin government perceived to be exceptionally weak in the face of these obviously right-wing attacks against Russian-speaking, ethnically Russian parts of the population, which, again, for eight years, Putin had refused to recognize the Donetsk or Luhansk People's Republic as independent republics. 
other parts of the political landscape in Russia, I'm speaking specifically about some of the major communist parties, had been demanding from Putin that he do recognize these governments as far back as 2014 after the fascist-led coup d'etat. Anyway, the timing has been perplexing to us, Walter. We're not a fly in the wall. We don't know. We're trying to make the best assessment. Maybe the Russians were just trying to take the West by surprise. Obviously, if the Americans thought the Russians were going to invade and weren't doing anything, as we've said over and over again, weren't doing anything to really stop it, it makes you wonder what the game was. And let's sort of sort through or consider what some of the options are. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I think certainly the plan A for the Russian government was was a negotiated solution. I mean, they've taken a huge economic hit as a consequence of the decision to take military action. And of course, they would have liked to have avoided that and have sorted out these crucial issues at the negotiating table, which is what they kept pushing for, pushing for, pushing for in the months leading up to the to the invasion. And so since NATO showed absolutely no interest in engaging in those negotiations, nor did the Ukrainian government, which really is is controlled on these critical matters by the NATO and Western powers, they proceeded with a military operation. It was a military operation across the entire territory of Ukraine. There was an invasion in the south, in the east, and in the north of the country with a huge number of troops aimed at the capital, Kiev. Not enough to take the city under traditional military doctrine, which states that you need three times as many soldiers as the number of soldiers that are defending if you're attacking and trying to take a city, but still a very considerable military force. And it seemed like the logic behind such a move was that a shock that big, a surprise attack, and one that takes place across the entirety of the country would be so great that the Zelensky government would be unable to survive politically. In other words, by making a big enough move militarily, it creates a shock politically significant enough to dislodge and disperse the government. In its place, Russia could have expected to install a new government composed of political leaders that are sympathetic to it, or at least favor a neutral, non-aligned foreign policy, of which there are many in Ukraine. I mean, for a lot of its post-Soviet history, the Ukrainian people have have elected uh, pro-Russian or at least, you know, not pro-Western governments into power prior to the 2014 coup, the Yanukovych government, right? I mean, that was, while it was a corrupt government that became unpopular over time, it was a democratically elected government. The main opposition party, which has now been banned and all of its leaders arrested, they were you know, considered to be quote-unquote pro-Russian. They didn't support the pro-Western path of the current government. So there are all these forces that exist in Ukraine who could conceivably have made up a government with some kind of legitimacy in the aftermath of the dispersal of the Zelensky government. But that didn't happen. The Zelensky government was able to remain in power with the backing of these, you know, ultra-nationalist fascistic forces internally and the backing of the United States and its junior imperialist partners externally. And so now the war seems to have entered a new phase where the fighting is taking place in the East. The Russian military has withdrawn from the north of the country, from the areas surrounding Kiev, as well as the areas around Chernev and Sumy, two other important cities in the north. And those soldiers are being redeployed to the Donbass, to Donetsk and Lugansk. 
the fighting around Mariupol is in its, you know, probably final stages. Everyone is expecting there to be a new offensive soon, perhaps in the direction of Kramatorsk and Slovyansk, which are sort of the two biggest remaining cities in the Donbass that are under Ukrainian government control. And it it remains anybody's guess how that will go or if the situation could escalate out of control given the extremely aggressive posture that we heard from from U.S. senators, from the U.S. government, and from increasingly powerful forces within the Western establishment. Yeah, that's where I think we're heading. We're heading towards escalation. Now, I want to make a couple quick points. I said, Nicole, we're going to turn to you, and I do want to turn to you about the way journalists are being basically silenced or or certainly shepherded so that they only reflect the dominant narrative of the war. We've talked in the on the show about the fog of war, meaning we're telling people, look, we don't really know what's going on in the war because we're not there. There is the foundational or in, inherent fog of war that surrounds every military conflict. Then there's also the fog of war deliberately created by U.S., propaganda or the propaganda of any state because the states that are engaged in combat have a, you know, they're all waging an information war. The information war is very, very impactful because public opinion matters. And so public opinion is shaped by information. That's why in the U.S., for instance, you know, we don't get any story other than the dominant narrative And as a consequence, that kind of creates a consensus, a manufactured consent, as Chomsky said, within the U.S. public opinion. But here's the point that I want to address. The Russians said they were moving into Ukraine to denazify and demilitarize the country. They invaded from the north, that is towards Kiev, the capital that was Russian troops that had been in Belarus, They had what they said or what the media reported was a 64-mile-long convoy of trucks and military vehicles. They were also came from the south. They appeared to be building a land bridge between Crimea and Russia proper. And, of course, they came in from the east. Now, they removed the troops from the north and... The Western media said this showed that the people in Kiev and the Ukrainians had defeated the Russians in the north and that Russia was losing the war. Now, the Russians say, no, we're not losing the war. This is a redeployment. Scott Ritter, who a lot of people on the left are you know, listening to when they're watching him, he was a former U.S. U.N. weapons inspector in Iraq, during the disarmament of Iraq, he's arguing that the Russian move away from the north was nothing other than a classic military feint. In other words, that the Russians made a move towards Kiev, towards the capital, to draw Ukrainian forces away from the east, which was always the real target. And having succeeded at making Kiev appear to be a battlefront, when in fact it was a fake battlefront, that it was part and parcel of you know Russia's military strategy, like not a setback. Now, others are saying in rebuttal to Scott Ritter, wait, 
a 64-mile-long convoy of trucks is not a feint. That's not a feint. That's a major operation. And for the Russian military to turn back now, it's not simply a part of an already existing plan of action to to maneuver, to deploy, to deceive, to create a feint, and then to withdraw. That, in fact, it's a retreat. But our point is that Retreats are part of warfare. It doesn't mean necessarily that any side is winning or any side is losing. In military affairs, retreats are part of every side's operations, including those who win wars. It's not always where you are on the offensive or on the counteroffensive. So simply put, we don't know. We're not there. We're not military experts. We're not a fly on the wall we're not privy to that kind of information. What we're trying to do, what our show is trying to do is to establish a framework, a political framework so that we can understand the war as it unfolds and while it's unfolding and to be able to not be simply lost in the details of military combat. Again, we're not there, but to be able to draw out the contours of what this struggle is all about, who's responsible, how it could end, the various ways it could end. And for us, most importantly, the way it could end quickly would be for the United States and NATO to do that, which they haven't done up until now, which is to go to the negotiating table and say yes, instead of no to Russia's demands, legitimate security demands that Ukraine and the other nearby countries be made neutral rather than a staging ground for advanced nuclear missiles that target Russia and Russians. If the Russians anticipated that they could quickly dispense of the Zelensky government, that it would crumble, that it would fall apart, or that it would run away, and that they could have a Ukrainian government that would be a partner, then they could say, we're demilitarizing and denazifying the country. Because the Ukrainian parties that are pro-neutrality are going to be against the Azov Battalion, right? They're going to police them, they're going to discipline them, or they're going to extinguish them. So I believe that was the Russian plan, to create a military crisis, a new Ukrainian government, a new partner in Ukraine, and then the Russians could make the argument, this isn't the Russian takeover of Ukraine, it's that we're dealing with other Ukrainians right now, and it's the ones who are not aligned with Nazis. I think that makes sense politically. And the fact that they could not do that or failed to do that has emboldened the Nazi forces, made them, as you said, Walter, more legitimate in the eyes of other Ukrainians who despised them in the past, but they're now posturing as the great fighters for the nation. So the idea of demilitarizing or denazifying Ukraine, that has essentially failed. That part of the Russian invasion has essentially failed because the Russians are saying, we're not going to take over Ukraine. We're only interested in the Donbass. That means the government that exists after this war is over in Kiev is in all likelihood going to be very, very close to the U.S. and very, very associated with the Azov fascist forces whose political fortunes have, in fact, increased, been improved as a consequence of this fighting. And at the same time, the United States has been able to gather together in Europe enough support for NATO and NATO expansion that countries even like Sweden and Finland are now saying that they too expect or want to become full members of NATO. For Finland to become part of NATO 
is as threatening to Russia as Ukraine becoming part of NATO because Finland is so close to St. Petersburg. Finland, too, used to be part of the Russian Empire. It only became independent after the Russian Revolution in 1917. Again, Nicole, and I want to go back to you now, the most important thing for us as activists, as anti-war people, as anti-imperialists, as socialists in the United States is to consistently expose the role played by the United States, by the U.S. military-industrial complex, by NATO, which is nothing other than a U.S.-directed and led military alliance, and expose the role of the imperialist forces for having created the war, which they're obviously quite happy about and actually quite happy to escalate, no matter what it means for Ukrainians, because it can only mean bad things for Ukrainians, and no matter what it means for the world, because it can only mean bad things for the world. But, Nicole, if anybody speaks up or speaks out, Ben Norton was denounced in the New York Times because he was on CGTN and said that there was a coup d'etat in Kiev in 2014, and it was led by fascists. He said that on the Chinese English language TV network, and the New York Times denounced China for spreading false conspiracy theories. Yeah, so they, the New York Times called the fact that there was a coup in 2014 a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and that Ben Norton was promulgating it on Chinese TV, which showed that China was echoing Russian propaganda about that there was a coup d'etat. That's how outrageous things are right now. There's a real witch hunt. We talk a lot about the new Cold War. Well, this is a new witch hunt. If you get up and say there was a coup in Maidan in February 2014 and fascists led the coup, which are obvious truths, there's nothing conspiratorial, nothing hidden. It's out in the open. There's a recording of it. There's a recording of a telephone call that proves it. Yeah, and where the U.S. government is, Victoria Nuland is directing who's going to be the new leader of Ukraine. None of that is a conspiracy, but this is the nature of a witch hunt. Anyway, Lee Camp, our friend, who's also been censored and lost his accounts on YouTube and elsewhere, he put something on Twitter about a French journalist, Nicole, who, quote, went off script after visiting Ukraine. Yeah. And of course, I was going to pull a clip of that, but obviously most of us, I assume, at least the four of us don't speak French. I assume most of our listeners don't. But I did write down the transcript of the captions that were written that Lee Camp had a friend of his who speaks French check. I just want to read this because it's really mind blowing. So it starts... You know, there was an appeal at the beginning of President Zelensky who called for international volunteers with combat experience. And so I accompanied three Frenchmen, one of whom had been a soldier before and two who had fought together in Rojava against ISIS. So people with military experience. I spent several days with them. I had the surprise, and so did they, to discover that to be able to enter the Ukrainian army, well, it's the Americans who were in charge. We almost got arrested. We were confronted with an American who came to tell us, here I am in charge, not the Ukrainians, but me. I'm talking of the training and enrollment of the international volunteers into the Ukrainian army. The guy even gave me his name. He's a veteran of the Iraq war. I did my verifications. It's a report that can be found in the Figaro magazine of this week. That's F-I-G-A-R-O. He took us for volunteers at the beginning, and I was extremely surprised by the violence of the words of this American. When he saw that we were journalists, he told us to leave. And then he was a little more, but still it was, I'm in charge. Take the chips out of your cell phones, especially the international ones. We will give you other chips, etc. And then we sign a contract. 
contracted until the, until the end of the war. And who's in charge? It's the Americans. I saw it with my own eyes. It's not the U.S. Army officially, of course. It's quite significant. We know that yesterday they sent 100 new weapons, which are called switchblades. There's some sort of drones that are fired by mortar then that can be remotely controlled. So new weapons. Officially, they have done it and they're going to do it. They have been there. That's the truth. I had the impression beyond the romantic aspect of this war, I thought I was with the international brigades and I found myself facing the Pentagon. Yeah, so this is a big embarrassment and people can go to Lee Camp's Twitter at Lee Camp. I also retweeted it. You know, watch the video for yourself. But obviously, these journalist stories are rare. They're few and far between. So we have journalists who are being taken down, censored. Also, YouTube has issued new guidelines designed to censor commentary on Ukraine. In other words, to make sure that certain sort of lines of inquiry or perspective are avoided. Here it is. Due to the war in Ukraine, we will pause monetization of content that exploits, dismisses, or condones the war. Please note, we have already been enforcing on claims related to the war in Ukraine when they violated existing policies. For instance, the dangerous or derogatory content policy prohibits monetizing content that includes violence or denies tragic events. This update is meant to clarify and in some cases expand our guidance as it relates to this conflict. This pause includes, but it's not limited to, claims that imply victims are responsible for their own tragedy or similar instances of victim blaming, such as claims that Ukraine is committing genocide or deliberately attacking its own citizens. The argument that we've just been making that the Ukrainian army was in fact attacking Ukrainians in the eastern part of the country following the coup d'etat. Yes, that conspiracy theory known as the obvious coup d'etat that took place in February 2014. And not only for that historical incident in 2014, but also if you report, as some have, on Bucha and make another type of analysis that it was not Russia committing a massacre, but rather the Azov Battalion and right sector and other people going in there caught on radio saying that they were going to go in and cleanse the area of collaborators. So that's very important because a lot of people are trying to provide another type of reporting and bring other voices. So, wow. Let's turn, we've spent a lot of time so far in the war, but there is another element to the war, which is how it's being used by capitalists generally. You know, of course, the military industrial complex, they're so happy because, you know, the Wall Street Journal and other main opinion molders are calling for the doubling of the U.S. military budget. Doubling the budget. It's already at $800 billion a year, officially. But, you know, it's not just the arms manufacturers, the oil companies are also getting everything they wanted, huge giveaways, so that they can, on federal lands, Esther, get leases to begin pumping more and more oil at the very moment or shortly after Biden said in his first months, we're going to do something about climate change. Oh, absolutely. We know that this continual escalation in Ukraine is also escalating the climate crisis. And this fact is not lost on climate scientists and 
activists who are taken to the streets ahead of Earth Day. There are mass demonstrations planned now and on Earth Day and this weekend. And remember that we discussed how Russia had barely crossed into Ukraine when the American Petroleum Institute called on the Biden administration to start doing even more for oil and gas polluting corporations like create more offshore drilling, allow more pipelines, decrease regulation, and provide even more permits for that type of drilling you're talking about. So I even learned from the group Fossil Free Media that these polluters already have stockpiled thousands of unused leases that they're not even using right now. So since the war and specifically the sanctions placed against Russia have further increased oil and fuel prices. But these fossil fuel corporations and corporate funded politicians continue to sell this narrative that the U.S. and Europe must drill for more oil and gas, ramp up fracking, and even re-energize dangerous coal and nuclear power to counter dependency on oil and gas from Russia. And maybe we didn't know before, but Russia is a major supplier to Europe lesser so to the UK and the US. And all of this rhetoric calling the Ukraine crisis Putin's war has extended to calling the fuel crisis Putin's fuel crisis or Putin's gas crisis or even Putin's economic recession, taking away the blame from capitalist exploitation that began even before the war and not even telling the truth about how Russia kept the oil and gas spigot on to Europe and to the US while still being while Russia was still being sanctioned by them. And even now, you know, ignoring the reality of globalization of the last 20 years after the fall of the Soviet Union, Europe is being asked to totally cut itself off from Russian fuel, freeze or swelter in their homes and disable their economies because they're being blamed for funding the war if they keep on taking oil and gas from Russia. And they're not, this takes away from the fact that the U.S. provoked the war. So at the same time, you know, activists around the globe are engaged in these acts of mass civil disobedience to demand that in particular, the U.S. and Europe at least live up to the meager climate goals just set in Glasgow or the campaign promises that these U.S. and European politicians like Joe Biden made to get elected at the same time, all this other stuff is happening. Activists are demanding this. Last week in D.C., for example, here in D.C., activists blocked off I-395. It's a major corridor coming into the city. On Saturday, similar traffic blockages were in Manhattan and in Paris, where people chained themselves together by their necks to protest what our governments are doing in collusion with these fossil fuel corporations. So the other thing that happened over the weekend is that the Biden administration late Friday, late in the news cycle, so that maybe people wouldn't notice it, they announced that the Bureau of Land Management will resume oil and gas lease sales on public lands, even though as a candidate, he said that these leases would end. And the Biden administration is claiming that they must resume the leases to comply with this 2000, 2021 federal injunction that blocked them from enforcing a temporary pause that they had created. But activists say that, you know, they don't have to abide by this so-called federal injunction. They don't have to, because he has the power as the executive to consider the climate an emergency, you know, all the fires and floods and air and water pollution, all these 
things that are happening right now can be considered emergencies. And he doesn't have to, he could continue to fight this type of expansion of leasing, but right now he's not doing that. So the Ukraine war is very good for ExxonMobil, very good for Chevron, very good for the arms manufacturers, very bad for the people in Ukraine, very bad for Russia and Russians, certainly bad for U.S. consumers. And if the war escalates, which is clearly where the dominant political forces in the U.S. want this to go, they want to escalate, this war is only going to get worse. Let's go on to another story. It's related to the military, Nicole. It was a front page. I saw it on the front page of the New York Times. It may have been in other media. It's like the untold costs or psychological costs on drone pilots of drone warfare. Again, it's an interesting way into the topic, like what's actually happening in the lives of drone operators who are, you know, watching people for months, watching them with their kids, getting the order from the customer, as they say, and then at a certain day and a certain hour, killing them. And sometimes they're the target, sometimes they're misnamed. Anyway, people are going through profound crises, these operators. But when you think about drone warfare in general, who's getting attacked, how many people are getting attacked, how many countries are being attacked, the nature of war making and war fighting itself, it's a very huge issue. This is one interesting way into the conversation, but it's a non-comprehensive way of discussing it. Anyway, let's just talk about the story as it's come out in the last couple of days. The New York Times article is called The Unseen Scars of Those Who Kill Via Remote Control. And the sort of summary right at the beginning, Captain Kevin Larson was one of the best drone pilots in the United States Air Force. Yet as the job weighed on him and untold others, the military failed to recognize its full impact. After a drug arrest and court martial, he fled into the California wilderness. This whole article really paints the picture of how awful, how soul-crushing, soul-wrenching it is to operate these drones. But of course, the reason that that's the case is because of the way that these drones are being used, right? Like, and it doesn't really address that. But let's talk a little bit about the psychology of it first. They interviewed Neil Schooneman. He was a drone sensor operator who retired as a master sergeant from the Air Force in 2019. He said, quote, in many ways, drone warfare is more intense. A fighter jet might see a target for 20 minutes. We had to watch a target for days, weeks, even months. We saw him play with his kids. We saw him interact with his family. We watched his whole life unfold. You're remote, but also very much connected. Then one day, when all the parameters are met, you kill him. Then you watch the death. You see the remorse and the burial. People often think that this job is going to be like a video game, and I have to warn them, there's no reset button. The article goes on to talk about unrelenting stress. Several former crew members said people broke down, drinking and divorce became common. Some left the operations floor in tears. Others attempted suicide. The main person profiled Captain Larson, who I mentioned. He tried to cope with the trauma by using psychedelic drugs, which became another secret he had to keep. And so just to be clear, these people are drone operators are going home every day. These aren't fighter pilots, you know, who are stationed overseas and who are flying a plane. These are people who are going into an office and doing this work and monitoring people. And then once someone else tells them it's time, then the they shoot them. The language there is, is interesting too. It's very revealing in some ways. 
The people who order the killing are called customers. Mm-hmm. It is. And the customer is named in the article as could be a ground force commander, could be the CIA, could be a classified special ops strike cell, special operations. And some examples of the way this looks, one drone operator was pressed to fire on two men who were walking by a river in Syria saying they were carrying weapons over their shoulders. That's what the customer said. The weapons turned out to actually be fishing poles. And though the crew member was told that the men could still be a threat, he actually was able to persuade the customer in this case not to strike. But another was ordered to attack a suspected Islamic State fighter who was pushing another man in a wheelchair on a busy city street. And the strike in that case killed one of them and killed three passersby. Meanwhile, you know, these crew members, these drone operators, they're filing civilian casualty reports. But the New York Times says the investigative process was so faulty that they rarely saw any impact and often they would not get a response at all. So there's more than 2,300 people who are currently doing this, currently assigned. And by 2012, the Pentagon was, you know, the New York Times says they had developed a seemingly insatiable appetite for drones and the Air Force was struggling to keep up training people because you still have to operate, you know, you're not just pushing a button, you still have to operate the drone. You still have to understand, you know, how that works. And in 2012, it's the Air Force started turning out more drone pilots than traditional fighter pilots, but still wasn't meeting the demand. You know, so obviously this is taking a huge toll on people. You know, you can read the article and find out more about the the main figure, Captain Larson. His marriage fell apart. He was put on trial facing a possible prison term of more than 20 years. But because these roles aren't considered you're not even considered a combat vet because you're not, you know, you're not physically there. But, you know, these are all blurred lines, right? If you're a fighter pilot, like you're not physically on the ground either. But these drone operators aren't considered combat. They don't have combat experience. And so there's no required psychological evaluation to see what influence this might have on your misconduct. So at his trial, no one mentioned that he ran 188 classified missile strikes or that he had to target, he was instructed to target a funeral which we know the U.S. military, this is a common thing that they target and kill people at. And then he was convicted. So, you know, he escaped and ran away. And eventually the police chase him as he's escaping after he doesn't want to go to prison. He's sure he's about to go to prison following his conviction. And then they corner him in a forest and he then takes his own life. He takes a gun and shoots himself. And they see that on a drone because he hears the drones overhead as he's running from the cops. He knows the drones are after him. And so he shoots himself. And what he didn't know, as it turns out, is that the officers were coming to tell him that his sentence had been suspended. I think the the important part of talking about this is to show just how horrendous the activities are, just how horrendous these killings are. And just how heinous and widespread they are that the customer, quote unquote, which is, you know, really the state is making these people do. And again, you know, you see some stories here and there of people pushing back or a lot of people quitting. There's a ton of turnover or, you know, like that one crew member, he was able to persuade the customer not to go through with it. But I think in the large sense, what this is showing us is the result of all of these policy changes that happened in the end of 2016, the Obama administration, you know, a lot of this was ramping up, like I said, in 2012. And then in 2016, the Obama administration loosened the rules around who can pull the trigger on this or, you know, who can make these decisions about the targets. So the Obama administration allowed 
people to approve airstrikes way further deep into the ranks. So not really, really high ranking generals, but people who are, you know, way lower, which hugely increased the number of drone attacks. And then the next year in 2017, the Trump administration secretly loosened them even further. So by that point, people who are essentially enlisted special operations soldiers were the people telling drone operators, go ahead, like shoot this person. We need you to shoot this person. So this is just huge, right? I think that's one clear point here. And I think one other important point to talk about is that as this was ramping up starting in 2015, you know, the Air Force was seeing this happen, but their response wasn't to say, hey, maybe we shouldn't be operating this many drones. Maybe we shouldn't have this many drone operators. Maybe we shouldn't, you know, be killing this many civilians. Maybe we shouldn't have drones, period. Maybe we shouldn't have drones at all. Their response was to begin embedding what they called human performance teams into some squadrons staffed with, and I'm reading from the New York Times, staffed with chaplains, psychologists, and operational physiologists offering a sympathetic ear, coping strategies, and healthy practices to optimize performance. So it's very interesting. It's like, we're going to set up counseling for our assassins. Because the drone operators are assassins, right? Right. And being an assassin is a stressful job. And so we're going to give you counseling. We're going to bring in chaplains. But, you know, just think if, if we found out that the Chinese government or the Russian government had 2,300 drone operator crews killing people that they decided, customers, Chinese and Russian customers decided should be killed. And they could be people who were... You know, in this article, it talks about people who were killed who had the wrong name, that they blew people up. I don't know if you have that part of the article in front of you, Nicole, but it's amazing. But I want to read one other passage from the article. Once in 2017, again, this is the New York Times. Once in 2017, his father, we're talking about Captain Larson, his father pressed him about his work. And Captain Larson described a mission in which the customer told him to track and kill a suspected Al-Qaeda member. Now, suspected, right? And being a member of Al-Qaeda doesn't mean you've actually committed a crime. But you tracked a suspected Al-Qaeda member. Then he said the customer told him to use the Reaper's high-definition camera to follow the man's body, after he killed him, to the cemetery and to kill everyone who attended the funeral. I'm sorry, like, this is the New York Times talking about, like, wow, isn't that stressful? Let's put the shoe on the other foot. If Cuba, if Venezuela, if Nicaragua, if Russia, if China had, you know, thousands of people who were part of drone missions and doing this kind of killing of individuals or the funeral parties at the funerals of the people who had just been killed by Russia or China or Venezuela or Cuba or Nicaragua, this would be an indication that these governments had committed war crimes and crimes against humanity. But it's kind of a, it's an interesting article. I mean, it's, you know, we're talking about it on our show because we wanted to share some of the information, but it doesn't get to the heart of the matter, that this is a criminal enterprise, that this is not legal, that this is not moral, it's not ethical, it's 100% an indicator of the crimes of imperialism, and U.S. imperialism in particular, And it doesn't rise to the level of sort of outrage from the media, including the writers who are writing the story or the editors who are allowing the story to be. Maybe they were more angry, but by the time the article goes through all these edits, 
It's written in a sort of non-emotive way. One drone operator, he said his team tracked a man in Afghanistan who the customer said was a high-level Taliban financier. For a week, the crew watched the man feed his animals, eat with his family in his courtyard, and walk to a nearby village. Then the customer ordered the crew to kill him, and the pilot fired a missile as the man walked down the path from his house. Watching the video feed afterward, he saw the family gather the pieces of the man and bury them. A week later, the Taliban's financier's name appeared again on the target list. The drone operator said, quote, We got the wrong guy. I had just killed somebody's dad. I had watched his kids pick up the body parts. Then I had gone home and hugged my own kids. I mean, they, they got the wrong name. Yeah. You know, he feels bad about it. It's stressful. Yeah. But again, the people of the United States have to call this out for what it is, that this is war crimes committed by a government that speaks in our name, by a government that's using our tax dollars. It's obviously a violation of international law and national law. It's murder. Even if they had the right guy, it would still be murder. It would still be illegal. But the fact that they can kill the wrong guy and watch his children pick up the body parts that are strewn about and bury them. Again, where's the outrage? Where's the demand? Like, let's stop this. He went on to say what we had done was murder and no one seemed to notice. We were just told to move on again. I mean, this seems like this is the actually pretty common in this area, in this workplace. He got home from a 15 hour shift in 2020, locked himself in his bedroom, put a cocked revolver to his head and through the door, told his wife he couldn't take it anymore. He was then hospitalized, diagnosed with PTSD and retired. Esther, let's go on to another story. We have a few more. They're very important. They're not long, but they're important. I don't know, this attack in Florida against so-called critical race theory, this is completely off the charts. It is because... We're looking at the Saturday Washington Post story. This is the lead. In its latest attempt to be the nation's leader in restricting what happens in public school classrooms, Florida said it has rejected a pile of math textbooks submitted by publishers in part because they contained, quote, contained prohibited subjects, end quote, including critical race theory. And it's difficult to really talk about what happened in Florida because the Department of Education there doesn't give any example of the books. They don't say what books they are. It's a math book. This is a math book and it's prohibited because of critical race theory. Right, right. So they don't say what books they're talking about and they don't give any examples in the books like cite passages that supposedly contain critical race theory. So I read a little bit more of that article and one that was linked to it. And this is what the article says. Some of the books not to be aligned with Florida's content standards called the Benchmarks for Excellent Student Thinking or BEST. But others, the department said, were rejected for the subject matter. Quote, reasons for rejecting textbooks included references to critical race theory, CRT, inclusions of common core or the unsolicited addition of social emotional learning, SEL, in mathematics. It said in an announcement on the department's website. So even though they don't give you any examples of the books or citations, I looked up what this social emotional learning is. And apparently this is something that some of these same groups of parents or politicians have latched onto and kind of connected it to critical race theory. So I'll just talk a little bit about this social emotional learning. 
Another linked article said that social emotional learning is a vehicle for critical race theory, an effort to divide students from their parents, emotional manipulation, and quote, the latest child indoctrination scheme. Social emotional learning is a vehicle for critical race theory and effort to divide students from their parents. This is these are things that a- activists are saying. These really right wing activists are saying about this effort. And so this article is also saying that many SEL programs have nothing to do with the identity politics debates that have galvanized parents and activists. But critics have focused on programming that does involve gender and racial equity that helps students identify their own biases and prejudices and that encourage student activism. And so because apparently these books may have references to this type of curriculum, they're being banned. I mean, I was at a loss to figure out how a math book could include this, but then I started thinking about, well, maybe they talked about like the black tax, like what happens if you're black and you're in a an impoverished neighborhood and you have to pay more for housing, you have to pay more for transportation. I was trying to figure out what examples could there be in math books, but they don't have any examples. So, you know, maybe at some point this will come out and we could kind of explore more on the show. But like you said, these are math books and not history books. And I would only hope that when I was in school, I had some math problems like that that helped me to (laughs) break down the inequities in society. I can't imagine that was there, but who knows? We'll have to see. Again, this is the whole witch hunting project that's going on in the United States. You know, the bourgeois liberalism and the right wing in America always talking, accusing the other side of being politically correct. But this is the whole sort of foundational element of the United States If you speak and do anything that's outside of the accepted dominant narrative, you're considered to be, you know, like marked for destruction. And now critical race theory, also known as teaching American history or referring to the struggles of black America or the problems caused by institutional racism, cultural racism, individual racism, like the whole sort of full spectrum of racism in America as it's developed in all of its complexity over several centuries. If you talk about that, if you do that, then you're promoting critical race theory. And like, there's not any honest person in the United States, including the racists, who would deny the fact that racism, white racism, that's what I'm talking about, racism, white supremacy has been so fundamental in the United States. And yet you can't talk about it. This is the land of witch hunts. I mean, the Salem witch hunts where women were, you know, burned at the stake or hung. Those were in 1692, 1693. I mean, this is like 400 years now of the United States engaging in one witch hunt after another. And again, going back to the New York Times, witch hunting journalists, including Ben Norton, because he appeared on as a guest on CGTN, the Chinese TV, and said that there was a coup d'etat in February 2014 in Ukraine. Like, that's where we are right now. If you speak and say obvious truths, you have crossed the red line. Yeah, and I also related to the discussion we had about the black educator who was working just across the the bay here in eastern Maryland who was fired from her job for trying to basically, like you said, to teach history and to give assistance to black students who had been discriminated against in that school district And the thing that I remember about that article is the fact that there were parents who wanted to dispute what happened to George Floyd. 
who wanted to basically say, well, no, we cannot teach that these people are victims of any kind of abuse. They're criminals and that they are, you know, they don't, they don't deserve any type of sympathy from us. And to me, it's, it's fascism. It's really a real chilling development of parents who do not want their children to be taught anything about anti-racism because they, they want their kids to be taught racism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're doing a great job at home, I'm sure. All right. We have two final stories. Of course, Liberation News at the end, but one brief update. Walter, the latest on Palestine. Yeah, that's right, Brian. Well, last Friday, Israel carried out a horrific attack on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites in the Islamic religion and a national symbol of the Palestinian people. During worship, during the month of Ramadan, a massive group of Israeli police officers raided Al-Aqsa Mosque, wounded over 150 people who were there. I mean, this is a clearly calculated provocation to double down on the repression of the Palestinian people that has been escalating in recent weeks. In the one week prior to this raid on Al-Aqsa Mosque, Israeli forces had killed 11 Palestinians, 11 Palestinians as part of this crackdown across the occupied territories against essentially resistance activities. So, you know, big groups of Israeli soldiers or police officers will go into Palestinian areas. They're, you know, looking for people who are accused of being part of the resistance and injure and kill a lot of people in the process. So this is something that looks set to continue, as is the Palestinian people's resistance. It's destabilizing the Israeli government. I think that's important to note. The the government of Neftali Bennett, who's this ultra-right, you know, fascistic character, it had already lost its majority in parliament. It only had a one-seat majority, and one member of the coalition quit for an obscure theocratic reason. Essentially, she objected to the distribution of bread at Israeli hospitals during Passover that don't conform with Jewish religious law. So they're already didn't have a majority in parliament. And the United Arab List, also known as RAM, one of the Palestinian parties that, oddly enough, is actually part of this governing coalition in Israel, which is sort of an anybody but Benjamin Netanyahu coalition, they've suspended their participation in the government too, which it's unclear if that's going to remain in place, if that's going to become permanent, or if this is just a temporary suspension. But I mean, this could actually bring down the the current government. Now, the people poised to take advantage of that are Benjamin Netanyahu's party, the, the right-wing, you know, extreme right-wing Likud party has been gaining in the polls. But yeah, I mean, this is really profound events that are happening both in terms of the scale of the brutality and the political shockwaves that they're causing. All right, let's go on. We're going to keep watching that things that could be rapidly escalating because of Israeli repression against the Palestinian people. We'll keep our eye on that in the next week or two. Walter, let's go on with the big stories from Liberation News. Yeah, that's right. Well, keeping with our theme from earlier in the show, uh, one article that I wanted to highlight is titled U.S. versus Peace, Biden Floods Ukraine with More Weapons, Eyes NATO Expansion. It summarizes, provides some more details on the escalatory actions that we were talking about that the Biden administration has been taking. I also wanted to recommend an article titled Charges Drop for Women Accused of, quote, Murder for Abortion, But Danger Remains. This is reprinted from Breaking the Chains magazine, which I also highly, highly recommend that people check out. I mean, this is about the new era of 
of anti-abortion, anti-woman repression. The right-wing state governments are, you know, preparing to unleash and actually already unleashing. And importantly, about how people can build the fight back movement against that. And a final article that I want to highlight is titled Protests Erupt in Grand Rapids, Michigan Following Police Killing of Patrick Leoya. This is about a brutal racist act of violence committed against a black man in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and the community response, the mass militant demonstrations that are taking place as a consequence of it, which is catching attention all across the country. So you can check out these articles and more on liberationnews.org and sign up for a newsletter at the top. All right, we're going to leave it there. We have, an, again, a big week ahead of us. Next week, we have the seminar, the monthly seminar for patrons. So if you listen to the show, rely on the show, want to participate in the seminar, we're going to be talking about the new era of global politics. Everybody can join in the discussion. We have our own community of resistance here, and you can join that community by becoming a patron, a subscriber. And we need our audience to really do their part and show their support by subscribing. It's not expensive. You can choose your own amount each month, but it's really, really necessary. But this week, tomorrow, we have Richard Wolf once again. We're going to talk about the big stories in the economy. On Wednesday, we're going to be recording the real story that'll be broadcast Wednesday night on Breakthrough News and then a podcast Thursday morning. We're going to be talking with Ben Norton, journalist Ben Norton, about the new witch hunt against alternative and independent media, its impact on politics, its potential impact on journalism, and why all of us need to stand together and defend independent alternative media at this moment when they are under attack. Anyway, that's all for now. We'll talk to you tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.